0: Two years ago you could borrow at 3.5% and today it's six and a half. Anytime the cost of borrowing and ultimately the cost of capital for buyers goes up that significantly, you're going to see a change in value. They can't pay what they want to pay. And eventually the unmotivated or price-motivated sellers, they just pull their deals off the market because they don't trade. Okay, that's fine. But then the motivated sellers, the sellers that have to sell for whatever reason, death, divorce, divorce, partnership breakup, or a fund maturity, whatever the reason or distress, whatever the reason is. They're going to have to sell the sales, the sales going to consummate at some point, And that price will be reset lower. Like we're seeing that in, in certain product. I mean, we're seeing that in all product types, some more so than others. So anytime there's a lowering of values, which is very painful, it's why transactions, you know, go down as much as they do. That is an opportunity to get into a product type at a lower basis.
1: Good morning, and you're listening
2: to Deconstruct, a
1: podcast from The Real Deal. I'm Isabella Farr. And I'm Susanna Cavanaugh.
2: Today, we're airing Isabella's interview with Kyle Matthews. He's the CEO of Matthews Real Estate Investment Services, which is a commercial brokerage that he launched in 2015. And your talk touches on the highs and, you know, kind of hiccups of starting your own brokerage. But it also digs into the investment sales market coming off a pretty tough year.
1: That's right. And we we got into some predictions and expectations for 2024, too.
2: Yeah, we love a look ahead. I feel like we've been rolling those out, um, you know, gradually through January. Yeah, I think with the Fed. You know, expecting to
1: lower rates. I think everyone is interested in hearing what you know other people in the industry think is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And it's it's such a stark contrast from last year, where there was so much pessimism. I think we're starting to get a little bit more optimistic.
2: It's interesting. I almost feel like there's, uh, and maybe this is just aligned with people's personalities, but there's such a dividing line on whether those rate cuts actually pan out. But maybe the people who are doubting it are just pessimists in general. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> okay, but before the interview, here's the top news of last week. Let's start with the unmasking of Strip Mall Guy. That was exciting. Isabella, you had that story. And I'm so curious what made Strip Mall Guy's name is Don Tetman? We now know. What made this man behind the ultra popular X account go public? Yes, the big reveal.
1: So Don Tupman runs University Avenue Partners and Town Center Capital. Together, they're a private equity firm focused on buying strip malls. Surprise, he really is a strip mall guy. Um, I (laughs) thought it was funny when I asked him when I met him for the first time and I asked him like, okay, so what do you work with? And he kind of looks at me and is like, strip malls <laughs> um, so he basically said that he wanted to grow his firm and strip mall guy the brand the account has become a way to do that he told me the story about how he was meeting a broker from philadelphia for the first time who really wasn't giving him the time of day until he said hey do you know strip mall guy that's me and suddenly the broker was all ears he also said that people had been trying to reveal his identity online so he wanted to get ahead of that. Mhm. Take
2: control of the narrative. Wait, so did you know who he was like months before?
1: I did. I met him probably a year ago um over Zoom and then and I did a big Q&A so go you know, feel free to read that too, um, where we kind of really dived into how he thinks about the retail industry. But yeah, I've had to keep it a secret for a year. Oh, (laughs) man.
2: (laughs) Um, Okay, so whoever hasn't seen your more recent story with him can dive in, but also stay tuned. So in February, we'll be airing an interview with Don on Deconstruct. Yep.
1: So sticking with the retail news, Jeff Sutton and SL Green unloaded 717 Fifth Avenue for $963 million, a huge purchase there. The buyer was Caring, a
2: French luxury group that owns Gucci, Balenciaga, and Alexander McQueen. Yeah, that's obviously a jumbo deal. And it's not Sutton's only one of late. So the retail titan rounded out 2023 with one of the biggest combined deals of the year. He sold off 724 Fifth Avenue to Prada, which has its flagship store in the building for $425 million is what that went for. And then also neighboring 725th Avenue, and that sold for $410 million. So combined $835 million. <laughs> It's interesting
1: we've seen this in LA too that all these luxury brands are buying up their own property this has been a trend um, in LA on Rodeo Drive for a few years now um, so it's interesting that that's happening in New York too
2: do we know like what's driving that I feel like it has we have seen such a surge in it recently.
1: I heard someone tell me um, and you know this is obviously just one person's opinion that the tenant improvement costs are so expensive um, to build out these luxury stores it pencils out to just buy the building for an exorbitant price instead of, you know, leasing it, then spending all this money kind of building out your space and you want kind of a long-term lease and so they might just say, "Hey, it's cheaper if we just buy it." Yeah, that makes sense. But jumping back to the 717 5th Avenue deal, there's some drama leading up to that sale that shows that retail, particularly on 5th Avenue, is performing incredibly well post-pandemic. So Suttons Lender had initiated a foreclosure on the building in 2022. The complaint alleged that An owner connected to Sutton's firm, Wharton Properties, and S.L. Green had defaulted on a $300 million loan tied to the property. Sutton accused the lender, New York Life Insurance, of killing a refinancing deal and saddling the property with a $10 million late fee. And in December, a judge said that the foreclosure could move forward. So the sale, which again, at nearly a billion dollars, brought in way more than the debt.
2: And 20 years ago, the property was valued at $240 million. And I'm going to bring up our Flow story briefly. So we ended up skipping it since it published late on a Friday. But even two weeks later, it's still getting a fair amount of clicks. Right. So
1: Flow, which is Adam Newman's anticipated apartment venture, for those unfamiliar with Newman, which I feel like there are a few of you out there, um, he was the you know ousted CEO of WeWork. His new venture is facing cash flow problems on two of its Nashville area properties.
2: And the kicker here is that Flow is not live yet. None of Flow's apartment
1: buildings have even opened yet. So, Yield Street, which is a JV partner with Flow on the deals, opened two funds to shore up operating shortfalls and help pay for interest rate caps. We've reported on this before, but the price of rate caps, which is essentially a hedge against rising rates, has risen dramatically in the two years since Newman's family firm bought the properties.
2: Right. And interest rates are also the cause of the operating shortfalls. The properties are financed with floating rate debt, which has become a really heavy burden for many multifamily owners after the Fed started hiking rates.
1: On one of the properties called Stacks on Main, we found in loan documents the revenue was not covering those monthly loan payments.
2: So one of the funds as of the So one of the funds, as of the Friday we're recording this, has closed and the other has raised the majority of its goal. And they opened early this month, I'm going to say, like probably at the beginning of the month. So, you know, pretty fast. Um, We don't have much insight into Flow's other assets. We know it owns about 3,000 units and those are in Atlanta, Fort Worth, um, Miami, and then also Nashville. But We're still going to keep digging for details on the performance of those buildings. Right.
1: And if you know anything or, you know, have heard anything about (laughs) Flow or how its buildings are doing, please feel free to reach out to us. Yes. Tips at
2: therealdeal.com. Yes.
1: And of course, we're going to, you know, follow when Flow actually goes live. As of right now, its landing page still reads coming soon.
2: All right. I think we can transition to your interview with Kyle Matthews. Again, he's the CEO of Brokerage Matthews Real Estate Investment Services.
1: Kyle, thank you for coming on. So tell me a little bit about, you know, how you started. Tell me first about your brokerage and then we can get into, you know, how you started the firm.
0: Yeah. Matthews Real Estate Investment Services. Very simple, uh, simple name. Very straightforward. We have about 800 people across 26 offices nationwide, based in the United States. Uh, We are capital markets focused brokerage, investment sales, debt origination, and some leasing. Uh, I would think the largest privately held brokerage company in North America that doesn't do debt servicing or property management, which I don't really consider capital markets focused. Um, So very big company, Uh, like I said, over 800 people, uh, probably about... About uh, 650 agents, uh, you know, sales persons uh, men and women across the country who represent owners buying and selling real estate, leasing real estate, originating debt and equity op- options for them. And then about 150 of their teammates on what we call the platform, which are more traditional uh, support personnel that can be uh, transaction management, creative design, production, uh, financial analysis, all the way down to legal and compliance, you know, so... Um, so about 650 agents, 150 additional teammates on the platform. And, um, you know, I, I founded the company in 2015 in, uh, in a little city of Los Angeles called El Segundo. And uh, in 2019, I moved my family to Nashville, moved our headquarters to Nashville, though we are um, respectfully a very decentralized company in terms of our leadership.
1: So tell me, why did you decide to start your own brokerage?
0: I was uh, the top producer, top producing agent at Collier's International in 2014 and heading into tw- 2015, everything was going great and uh, had no motivation to leave or to start my own company or make any change to my life whatsoever. Uh, things were going so well. There was no motivation to do that. But what happened was in early 2015, um, Collier's International um, let myself and others know that they would be going public uh, in an IPO that summer. And as part of that process, they were um, adjusting some of their internal policies and procedures. One of which that really became an issue for me was what I will call, I don't know what their term for it was, but let's call it exclusive market coverage rights. And so what that means is um, agents or teams across the country are Colliers made commitments to them that any deal within the company in their market, whatever that market they defined, however they defined it, would be exclusively run through them, and/or they would receive the fee. And in 99% of brokerage businesses, that's totally fine. You know, a lot of times, uh, a broker who sells multifamily or office or industrial in Los Angeles wouldn't be doing a deal in Houston, Texas, or Chicago, Illinois, or Charlotte, North Carolina. But my business was very atypical. Uh, I was a retail, a commercial retail investment specialist selling shopping centers and single tenant retail across the country. And on the shopping center side, my business was primarily account driven. So uh, the large publicly traded REITs would call me up and say, all right, Kyle, we got three more deals for you to sell. One's in Georgia, one's in Ohio, and one's in Texas, right? And then if I had a teammate at the company I was at at the time who was qualified in that market, who could add value, I would certainly bring them in. But the way it worked out, there were, there were a lot of markets that we didn't really have a qualified retail specialist. So then I would just run the assignment on my own. And I was executing at a high level, as evidenced by the fact I was their top producer globally. And the, the clients were very happy and it worked well. And then, again, not to get too far in the weeds, on the single tenant side, you know, you have one tenant, oftentimes there's a long-term net lease, a, a triple net lease in place with a credit tenant, like a Dollar General or a CVS or a Starbucks. And you really respectfully don't need local expertise and local mo- market coverage. Um, a lot of times the buyers of that product, not only are they not from the state that the property in, they, they don't even see the site. It's more of a bond type investment than anything. So they came to me and said, Hey, we're we're doing, we're, we're implementing or were enforcing these rules your business like you're doing deals all across the country and i'm going to paraphrase here more or less you're going to on some of these deals you're going to have to start paying some of the local agents part of your fee that was why i left colliers at the time and so it was there was no animosity there was no resentment there was no you know there was no nothing bad that happened
1: can you talk about some of the challenges i imagine you know it's not easy I mean, you already had the kind of the team behind you, but can you talk about some of the challenges um, with starting a brokerage?
0: It's easy for me to say this now because I'm on the other side, but I don't. There's a saying which I'm sure you've heard or the audience has heard: is that ignorance is bliss, and that is never more true than starting a company. When you start your own company um, or you go off on your own in whatever uh, dynamic or uh, of the industry, whatever industry you're in, whether it's commercial real estate or something else, there's this. Uh, there's kind of this. Romantic idea of what it's going to be like, you know, it's kind of the Disney movie, happily ever after. There's so much to running a company that you would never, in your wildest dreams, think through ahead of time, consider, or even contemplate that exists. And and like the easiest I can point to is legal compliance, HR, payroll, insurance, like all of these incredibly non sexy dynamics of running a company that are incredibly important and and vital and necessary to having a functioning company. It's easy to talk about putting your name on the door and going and doing deals and growing that, but none of that happens. If the actual foundation of your company isn't solid, it's just like a house. Like you could have the prettiest house. If the foundation of that house is is weak or there's cracks in it, your house is going to fall down. No truer is that than than a company. And, And unfortunately the foundation of a company, are the parts that many founders don't want to spend time on. And not that I love doing it, but I I never really was bothered by sitting and going through p and and AOPs and budgets and sitting, working through legal documents and getting our payroll uh, set up or, or getting our licensing done in all the states where we needed to do business.
1: You do a lot of advisory work and it seems like, you know, This is a time where that's really needed, given that investment sales are at a standstill and a lot of owners are trying to, you know, reevaluate their portfolios or occupiers are trying to figure out, you know, whether they need space. Um, Can you talk about that, um, you know, and the sort of work that you're doing now?
0: There's never a greater window of opportunity for brokers to step into that role, that real true advisory role than in bad markets like today, because owners, information's changing so fast. There's certainly feelings that are going outside of owners of fear and concern and uncertainty where they're looking for someone to be a resource and and not necessarily, you know, feed them candy, tell them lies, pet them on the head and tell them everything's going to be okay. But that they're like, no, what is going on out there? What should I be prepared for? Where are the opportunities to, to add value, even in a market where values across the board might be going down? And then when you come out of these markets, you get to carry that relationship back into the good markets. and so. Um, yeah, I mean, investment sales very much, uh, I mean, they're down probably 60%. I, across the industry in 2023, it's uh, the third week of 24. Um, we, we had a very good year. We were not down anything like that. Um, and so, and I'm very optimistic on 2024. I, it is, I would bet my bottom dollar that we will see year over year growth in, in sale velocity over 23, even historically, it might not be a great year, but it's going to be better than last year. And so that's, that's good news. But, um, but yeah, you know, it's, um, owners, all owners make money in a good market, right? All owners make money and they could even, even bad buys, bad sales and bad decisions can be papered over by just the natural appreciation. It's kind of like that saying, I don't know if it's Buffett or Munger or who said it, it was, you know, rise, rising tide lifts all boat, but when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming without the, you know, without their shorts on. The tide's out right now, and now you could see the owners who perhaps weren't fundamentally sound in their underwriting or they made assumptions that were too promotional, too optimistic that now can't be defended in terms of where market rents are going. And if we could come in and help them make the best decision available for them at the time, it increases the probability that we earn a, life, a you know, lifelong client. And you know, ultimately what brokers want to do is they want to develop annuity clients. They want to develop clients because there's no passive income in our business. But the closest thing we can get to is meaningful relationships with owners who are in good markets and bad buying and selling. And how do you get them to look at you as one of those people? It's It's really the opportunity presents itself in tough markets like today.
1: You know, we've reported a lot about multifamily owners in the Sunbelt that are, you know, experiencing challenging conditions. Um, and I was wondering if you saw this as an opportunity for some to kind of get in at a lower basis or.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, it's uh, anytime values come down, which they have and, and in, in the office, they've come down significantly and multifamily. There's been a material change, and we're seeing it come down even further. Two years ago, you could borrow at 3.5%, and today it's 6.5%. Anytime the cost of borrowing and ultimately the cost of capital for buyers goes up that significantly, you're going to see a change in value. They can't pay what they want to pay, and eventually, the unmotivated or price-motivated sellers, they just pull their deals off the market because they don't trade. Okay, that's fine. But then the motivated sellers, the sellers that have to sell for whatever reason, debt, divorce, divorce partnership breakup or a fund maturity, whatever the reason or distress, whatever the reason is, they're going to have to sell the sales. The sales going to consummate at some point and that price will be reset lower. Like we're seeing that in, in certain product. I mean, we're seeing that in all product types, some more so than others. So anytime there's a lowering of values, which is very painful, it's why transactions, you know, go down as much as they do. That is an opportunity to get into a product type at a lower basis. Um, And then the next step of that is actual distress, which we're starting to see certainly in office, that's the buzz, you know, there's a lot of distress in office. And I think over the next 12, 18 months, there's gonna be a lot of price discovery there. And there are gonna be a lot of assets that are purchased at incredibly cheap values over the next 18 months in office that five, seven, 10 years from now, we're gonna look back and be like, oh my gosh, they killed it. Like, how did not more people, how how come more people weren't buying that? You know, because while, do i do agree that there's a fundamental change in americans work american workers relationship with office i also don't think it's it's going to go away as much as maybe the prices suggest today i think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle and the people who buy the best product at very cheap prices whether it's from sellers or actual lenders who, who took back asset or note sales whatever it is they're going to be rewarded I think you're starting to see those opportunities in multifamily, specifically in the Sunbelt. I know I I think you wanted to talk about the Sunbelt today. Um, I I think you're seeing opportunities in markets that had tremendous um, construction over the last three, four years. And now there's an oversupply problem. And what's happening is we're seeing significant year over year rent declines in Class A, Class B, Class C, multifamily, workforce housing, and you're seeing higher vacancy, you're seeing much bigger rent concessions just to get units leased up than, than the developers thought. And so you're also starting to see distress enter multifamily. And so especially you know in markets like Phoenix and Austin and Nashville and uh, Florida and the Carolinas, you're seeing a lot in that Sunbelt region where there's just been this massive supply that's coming online and actually still in in the in the construction pipeline. So more coming online as much as these markets have grown like crazy with population inflows from you know blue cities and blue states, people moving uh, for job opportunities or just quality of life and cultural reasons, it just can't keep pace with the amount of supply keeping online. So now you're also seeing distress uh, showing up in multifamily. And again, to your point, there are going to be some purchasing opportunities over the next 12 to 24 months that we're going to look back on in five or seven years and we're gonna be like, oh my gosh, those guys killed it on that deal. Like, How did they get it so cheap? It's like because you know why? Like number one, some of it's just courage. They had the courage to buy an asset when a lot of people were like, ah, I'm going to wait and see. I'm going to wait and see. Because nobody can ever really time the market up. And I bet there are a lot of people in 2009 or even 2020 who said, you know what, I think I want to buy, but I'm going to wait a little longer. I'm going to wait and see a little longer. And they missed those really great buying opportunities because they just waited too long. They tried to time the market. And I just don't think that's possible. It, it can happen by chance, but I don't think it's something that people can really time. And so, you know, it's uh, I think for the first time this year in, in you know, 12 to 18 months, we're going to start seeing opportunistic capital reenter the market, knowing that if they're not at the bottom, they're pretty close to it from a pricing standpoint.
1: Got it. Yeah, I had a broker c- tell me a couple of weeks ago that he said, mark my words, you're going to see a lot of people make a lot of money out of this cycle.
0: Yes. In multifamily. Yes. And very, very unique, you know, unique opportunities within industrial retail because there's less distress there. I, I believe you're going to see a lot of office product where right now, even when it trades half a replacement costs a lot of the smart money is like, who are they going to get to lease that? Like, how are they ever going to make money? They just, okay, they'll just lose less money than the previous owner. But I think a lot of that product, look, eventually, I don't believe in the work from home as a sustainable, mentally healthy choice for most people. So I just think While office may never come back to what it was pre-COVID, I think it's going to come back significantly from where it is today in terms of occupancy and rent. So there's probably a lot of class B and C office product that may never find a home again. But I think there's a lot of, maybe it's not class A, but it's a little better than class B uh, office that today is just being totally discounted. It's kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater that in five, seven, 10 years, there's going to be demand for that space and those buyers are going to have such a low basis that they're going to crush.
1: Yeah. I wanted to talk about whether you, whether you think kind of investor appetite in the Sunbelt has died down a little bit or just kind of mellowed out.
0: It's muted. It's you know, it's uh, it's not what it was two years ago. And so if you had a, I mean, a class A new construction or even, you know, garden style class B workforce built in the 1980s multi-family property in any Sunbelt market 2021, early 22. I mean, you had so many offers. It was bid up overpriced expectation. There was insanely cheap debt. There was unlimited amounts of LP equity. And so in that sense, yeah, a lot of that has gone away. Lenders are few and far between, uh, you know, outside of agency debt. Um, A lot of the LP equity is gone or is very, very gun-shy. They're They're their preferred returns are much higher. Their promote structures are much more advantageous to them. And um, and so we're seeing that in pricing, you know, while some of these properties may have traded mid fours to mid fives. Now we're starting to see them trade, you know, with sixes. and And in some cases, I think you'll find some seven handles on them. So you know, on average, there's probably been already 125, 150 basis points of price movement. I think you're going to see another 75 to 100 basis points over this year of of price movement. And What that means, unfortunately, is for some of those buyers who bought in 2021, highly levered, you know, taking advantage of the loose credit, highly levered, God forbid, they put adjustable rates on and they did it under the assumption that they'd be able to Put some lipstick on the units, turn units for 10 to 20 grand a unit, jack up rents and then sell. Not only the they're not going to be able to get higher rents, their rents are actually going to go down. They're vacant, they're going to have higher vacancy rates. And I think you're going to see um, a handful of owners lose a lot of assets back to the lenders over the next 12 to 18 months in multifamily in the Sunbelt. So the answer is yes. Certainly the design, the demand for that product is. Is lower. The volume's been turned significantly, you know, materially down from where it was 18 to 24 months ago. Now, to some degree, that's true about every product type, candidly, but, you know, office being the biggest and next up being a multifamily. And um, the biggest reason for that is just oversupply. And that oversupply is hitting the market. It's not, look, the economy's still in great shape. We're having positive job growth. We're having positive GDP prints, which, again, is shocking to me. I, I don't, I don't, I have, Totally underestimated the 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 American consumer and their willingness to go into debt and spend money, but fine. Um, But we're seeing job growth. I think it's tapering off, but it's not the economy that's driving you know rents down in multifamily. It is simply a a, just this crazy, crazy amount of supply hitting these markets that were pro growth. That you know you red, red states, right? Like generally speaking, the culture in a lot of these. Republican-led states, really not many Republican-led cities, but states that are much more pro-growth is, hey, go build it, go build it, go build it, and if you let if you if you let developers build, what would they do? They're, they're going to build, build, build until it's overbuilt.
1: Last question: If you were to pick three asset classes that you're you know excited about or you know think um, will do you know well over the next year or so, what would they be?
0: Well, you know. I will, I'll start by taking the easy route, say industrial, I, you know, look, even for the industrial construction that's happened over the last five years, which is greater than kind of a historical sense of industrial, they're just not building a lot of class A, class B infill industrial. And so if you can acquire infill industrial properties in that, you know, five to $25 million range, you know, kind of sub-institutional. You know, it's a little bit below the the radars of the the Blackstones and the KKR's and all those like, or the operating reach. You get into a smaller product, I think you can get some decent buys there, even though it will feel expensive. I just see continued rent growth because where else are those tenants going to go? They're not building any new infill industrial, right? Um, Even the industrial construction that's happening is happening way way outside core MSAs. Massive, massive, massive um, projects being built, but not the smaller. You know kind of class b stuff so i uh, i'm a big believer in that product uh so again i'm a buyer of industrial if i'm an owner even if i feel like i'm getting it extremely low yields i promise you like you're going to see tremendous rent growth in industrial over the next 10-15 years especially with the way the economy is going and you know somewhat somewhat to, historically to the loss of retail you know brick and mortar going online things like that now the second asset class somewhat contradict what I said for the first time in 15 years is I'm a, I'm super, super bullish on retail. Um, uh, clearly the American consumer keeps spending, they keep buying, um, every day, less and less people cook food at home. They go out, uh, experiential, you know, they want to be out around people. I think if COVID taught us anything, we are social creatures and we do not like being locked up in our houses we like to be out we like to be around people we like to be outside it's very natural for us maybe it's our circadian rhythm or something um but specific to retail there's really been three major challenges over the last 15 years it started with the great financial crisis and just uh, you know a lot of those retailers going bk or being you know going extinct because they just they lost their customer base or a lot of those retailers just having rents that weren't replaceable, signing rents in 2005, six, and seven that had to be marked to market. So they went through that. Then they went through really coming out of that, that 2010 to 2020, that kind of lost decade in retail, which was the Amazon apocalypse, which is, oh, brick and mortar is gonna be gone. It's all, it's all going online. And, and you know, fast forward today, we found out that's not true. People like to shop, they like to experience, they like to touch and feel things. Certainly there's a lot of what we do, our day-to-day that we get online, But we also, I don't see a world where we do all of our shopping online. I think there's always going to be a desire for retail. And then number three was COVID. Was businesses shutting down or figuring out how to go on the channel or even restaurants figuring out how to do delivery or pickup. And and so you have this incredible roster of retail tenants that have been through crisis after crisis after crisis. So I kind of call them battle-tested or cycle-tested businesses. So if you've had a retailer in your space that made it through the GFC, that made it through the Amazon apocalypse, that made it through COVID, that's a pretty viable business. And so you have all of these incredibly battle-hardened retail businesses that, frankly, I think have shown they're going to survive in an environment which over the last 15 years, we actually have not only is there effectively no new construction of retail product, we've actually had gross retail GLA taken offline as older retail sites and malls have been taken offline, have been demoed and Converted to call centers and churches and storage space, like and so we have less retail GLA than we had 15 years ago. We have an incredible roster of tenants, and that's why for the first time in alongside Bella, you're seeing vacancies across the board. I think they're in the four percent. Like retail vacancy was always seven to 10. You know now we're seeing incredibly tight retail vacancies. Which when that happens, what do we get? For the first time in 15 years, we're seeing incredibly healthy same store uh, rent growth, sales growth, and rent growth. And so I'm just a big believer in um, in, uh, in retail. So industrial number one, retail number two. And frankly, you know, again, not to take the easy route, the yields are incredibly low. It's a much longer kind of generational wealth play. But give me the best multifamily property on the best block any day of the week. Like whether it's, you know, the west side of LA or Manhattan, New York, or the north shore of Chicago, or you know the the park cities of Dallas or almost anywhere in Florida right now if you buy multifamily yeah you got to buy in the threes and fours you're going to be you're going to have to come in with a heavy down payment because you know interest rates are so much higher but if you buy that and you hold i don't know how you don't look smart you know there's nobody in this country who purchased incredibly well located multifamily assets you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, who doesn't today look like the smartest guy on the planet. So, you know, so, so, you know, when, when it, when in doubt, when all this fails, buy extremely well-located, low levered multifamily product. And I, you're never going to get hurt. And I think with continued rent growth and all that, you're always going to come out looking like a really savvy investor, but, you know, I'd say industrial retail and incredibly well-located multifamily Those are my three products. If I have to, if I, if I got three places to put money, that's probably where I'm looking.
1: Deconstruct as every Monday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts, or you can listen at therealdeal.com for comments on this episode or on the series, or if you have a guest or idea you'd like to pitch, feel free to reach me or Susanna at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, we're looking at bank exposure to commercial real estate loans. Tune in then.